Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with the Hack Podcast. Surely at least once you've dreamed of walking into your boss, just quitting on the spot, taking off on an adventure, packing it all in and living. Maybe you think about it once an hour. Sounds good, doesn't it? But who actually does that? Let's be serious. Well, you're about to meet some people who have. We've got this story later of a group of strangers in their 20s who've decided to jump on a boat, sail around the world, and they made that decision in just 24 hours. What could go wrong, right? (laughs) Also coming up, former AFL players are going to go to court over concussions they say led to permanent head injuries. We'll have more on that. But first... Today, a new chapter in the relationship between our nation, the United States and the United Kingdom begins. On Triple J. Yeah, it's hard to escape this news. The government signed a massive defence deal with the US and the UK, costing hundreds of billions of dollars. It's actually hard to comprehend just how much money this is. The aim, according to the government, is to maintain peace in the Asia-Pacific region. But could it actually stir stuff up? There's been a lot of talk about the rise of China recently. In a bit, we're going to speak to an expert about this. But first, here's Shalala Madora explaining what this deal is. If you like boats and flags and defence deals between old buddies, then this is the announcement for you. I'm proud to be your shipmate. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was in California, signing a huge deal with the leaders of the US and the UK, called AUKUS. Represents the biggest single investment in Australia's defence capability in all of our history. In a nutshell, the US and UK already have nuclear-powered submarines and Australia wants in. Beginning in the early 2030s, the United States will sell three Virginia-class submarines to Australia. Australia will eventually have eight nuclear-powered submarines. They're designed by the UK with an American combat system. But building subs from scratch takes a shared load of time. So in the meantime, the US is selling us some of their second-hand ones. This is the first time in 65 years and only the second time in history that the United States has shared its nuclear propulsion technology and we thank you for it. All this high-tech stuff costs major coin, up to $368 billion over 30 years. Now, the cost is significant. You don't say, Defence Minister Richard Miles. All of that cashola has got to come from somewhere. But when asked by journos, Minister Miles just said, wait and see. Where Where are those cuts coming? Uh, You you will get all of that information uh, before the budget. Opposition leader Peter Dutton is broadly on board with the AUKUS deal, but he wants to make sure that the government doesn't cut other parts of the defence budget. We can't allow Labor to cannibalise the defence force to pay for AUKUS. It's not an either-or option. Keep in mind, Australia doesn't have great form with delivering on our defence promises. Analysis from last year found that at least 28 defence projects were running a cumulative total of 97 years late and $6.5 billion over budget. Eventually, we'll be able to build subs in South Australia, one every two years from the early 2040s to the late 2050s. Here's Minister for Defence Industry, Pat Conroy. 
It will create around 20,000 jobs, including a direct industrial workforce of up to 8,500, building and sustaining the submarines. But there's a catch. Australia doesn't have a workforce that's skilled in this as yet, according to Jane McMaster from Engineers Australia. We expect that at least 50,000 extra engineers are needed across the whole Australian economy. Minister Conroy says that's a great opportunity for young people. An apprentice who starts on this project today could work their entire career building these submarines for Australia. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. Some messages coming through. Someone says, what's so good about submarines? They literally just cruise around the ocean. I don't know. Maybe we can find out now. We've got an expert for a bit more analysis. Professor James Currens from the University of Sydney specialises in Australian-American relations. He knows a lot about this deal and he is with us. Hey, James, thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure. Tell me, what does this deal mean for our relationship with the US? How do you see it in terms of how significant it is? Oh, look, I think it's uh, probably probably the most landmark kind of development in the relationship since the ANZUS Treaty was signed in 1951. I mean, that's arguable. I mean, we went all the way with LBJ in Vietnam and then we had Julia Gillard in 2011 um, create that rotational force of American Marines in Northern Australia. But I think just given the sheer size of this deal, its complexity, uh, the costs, um, as you've already outlined there in the introduction... Um, I, th- I think this is, you know, just the ultimate kind of symbol of just how deeply integrated America has become, with uh, Australia has become with US Defence Forces and how locked in we are now to America's strategy in Asia. So apart from the obvious, the subs, what does Australia get out of this and what does America get out of it? Because I'm sure they're both, you know, looking at, you know, how the deal is going to work mm-hmm. for them respectively. Well, Australia gets a deterrent. I mean, once 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 the submarines are delivered, and we we're originally going or initially going to buy three Virginia-class submarines from the Americans, they'll be second-hand submarines. Once once they are delivered, we've 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 got a deterrent. And um, I mean, let's face it, the whole AUKUS project has been driven by uh, China's rapid military growth, rapid rise, its military modernisation, its greater assertive posture in the region. Um, for the Americans, I mean, I think this is this is a this is a classic example of, of which way American foreign policy is going in terms of being a lot more transactional. They are looking for allies to step up to the plate to do a lot more, and particularly in this part of the world. Biden is not as crude as Donald Trump in putting the acid test on allies, but this is still a very transactional America that is looking for Australia to carry some of the weight um, in helping Washington to maintain its primacy in this part of the world. That's essentially what this deal signs us up to. That's interesting. Will America expect to use all this stuff as well? Like, do we know much about that kind of deal? Are they going to be taking the subs out for a spin too? Well, Dave, that is the question, right? Now, these initial Virginia-class submarines will certainly be, I think, largely manned and crewed by American sailors. There will be Australian sailors on board, there may be a joint skipper at some point in the 2030s, but we need to have a hell of a lot of submariners trained in how to operate such a such a capability. So for the time being, you know, the question of operational control is a real murky one. I think the government is really dancing around this. I mean, they keep saying in absolute terms that Australia will have control, that the sovereignty will be ours. But I think 
the reality is that if there is any kind of military contingency uh, with China in the South China Sea or over Taiwan, it's impossible for Australia to say no. Um, it's impossible for Australia to stand back and say, well, actually, thanks for giving us this nuclear technology, which you only have also just, which you gave to the POMs back in 1958. But if you get into a war with China, we're stepping out of it. I mean, no government of either political persuasion in Canberra can now say that. It's interesting. Um, I'm speaking with Professor James Curran from the University of Sydney about this big um, AUKUS deal that's been announced. I want to ask you, James, do you think, I've been reading some of your writing lately and you were talking Mm. about what we might see from our neighbours. Like, do you think we'll see Mm. neighbours like Indonesia step up now and take their own action in terms of their defence systems, beefing those up? Look, it's it's entirely possible. I mean, you know, if you if you if you're thinking about it, you sort of think, well, why wouldn't Indonesia want a capability of that kind? How nervous does it make Indonesia, despite the relationship being stable at the moment between Jakarta and Canberra, and we're looking to sign a, you know, we have just signed a new security arrangement with the Indonesians. Um, but you know, history often has an ace up its sleeve. We don't know what those circumstances will be like. We know the Malaysians are also, like Jakarta, um, quite unnerved about the implications of this deal for nuclear non-proliferation. They fear a regional arms race. Again, I'd say, of course, it's China's rise and China's build-up of its military arms that has prompted this. Um, but I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for the Australian government to maintain these kind of two narratives. They've got one on, on one hand, Foreign Minister Penny Wong has done a terrific job, I think, in sort of saying to Southeast Asia... We're not here to force you into a choice between Washington and Beijing. We're not here to lecture you. We're here to listen to you. And we think that you should, um, you know, understand that AUKUS is about keeping the regional peace, keeping the strategic equilibrium. It's a good thing for you. Now, I think Southeast Asian capitals broadly would look at this and say, well, here we go again. This is an Australia where once, you know, as so, as so often happened in Australian history, when there is a a threat from Asia, when there is a perceived threat from Asia, the strategic impulse in this country is to hug tightly to its great and powerful friends in Washington and, of course, uh, London. I mean, I, I think that's another that's another question altogether. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of um, massaging Britain's pretensions at being a post-Brexit global power, and uh, I'm not sure that really has any has much credibility. James, on China, there's been a mm. lot of talk about China lately, about Taiwan, mm. also the possibility mm. of war breaking out, some particularly dire yeah. warnings coming from one newspaper in particular mm-hmm. predicting war could happen in just a couple of years. What do you mm. think about all that? Look, I think, you know, obviously the first responsibility of any Australian government is the protection of its country, the protection of its people. One can never be, one can never be naive, uh, especially in the strategic circumstances we're in, where you do have this rising power that is becoming more assertive, that is bullying, that is unsettling people with some of its wolf warrior diplomacy, right? That's happening all around the world, not just in Australia, but we feel it particularly given our, our, geo, our geopolitical sort of position. Now, I mean, I, I think there's a responsibility, uh, though, on the part of analysts and commentators not to beat drums of war. I mean, I, my question about that recent analysis in a particular newspaper was, what, what do these experts know that the entire Western intelligence community do not? How, how are they so confident that they know the timeline under which Xi Jinping is operating in Beijing to take back Taiwan. One of the, one of the experts there is, is, is known for sort of coming out with these regular kind of predictions. A few years ago, he said it'd be war 
in a few months. Now we've got it in three years. There's a, a general in the Pentagon recently said it was going to be in two years. I mean, I think all this speculation on timelines um, can be quite feverish, it can be quite hysterical, but one thing it's doing, I think, Dave, and that series in the Fairfax Press last week, what it was doing was expressing, underlying all of it, was this frustration that, in fact, the Albanese government, especially Penny Wong, has stabilised the Australia-China relationship. Now, that's not to say it's going to get back to what it was. It never will, I don't think. But they've stabilised it. They've stopped the inflammatory rhetoric. China's put their wolf warriors back in, you know, back in back on the reserves bench, um, and and they're trying to just sort of you know manage a very difficult and tricky relationship, right? Um, so, who knows what Xi Jinping is thinking? He he, you know, uh, it would be very difficult for China, I think, to mount an invasion of Taiwan. Um, uh, but they may also put the squeeze on Taiwan in terms of blockade, as we saw last year when Nancy Pelosi, the, the Speaker of the, of the House of Representatives in Washington, uh, visited. It could be some kind of uh, this sort of real sort of squeezing or blockade of Taiwan, which makes it very difficult for allies to know when to intervene. So it's complex, it's tricky, mm-hmm. and it's not helped by these kinds of hyperbolic uh, press statements from so-called experts. Well, it's definitely the topic um, of the moment and there are a lot of people doing a lot of analysis, including you, Professor James Curran from the University of Sydney. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. And we've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, defence spending is always large, but I'd much rather $300 billion be spent on ending poverty. Another person says, is this just going to end up massively over budget, just like the joint strike fighter jets? Mark in Newey says, how can we justify such an eye-watering expense for a deterrent with second-hand subs that might not be ever used? And someone else says, hey, staffing the subs is going to be a huge issue. Why not invest $300 billion in drone subs? Look, a lot of comments there. Time to move on. Hack. We wouldn't expect to treat our workers in a normal workplace this way, so we need to be able to do the same for our football players. On Triple J. Yeah, I don't know whether you saw the news, but some ex-AFL players who claim to have been permanently damaged by concussions and head knocks have launched a class action today. Lawyers for the more than 60 former players say they've suffered long-term effects from their injuries. Two-time Premiership player for Geelong, Max Rook, is at the front of all this. And also today, we saw the AFL announcing it's spending $25 million to study the long-term effects of concussions. It's big news. So it's time to speak to a couple of people who know something about this. Brendan Swan and Amanda Gilmore are with a new charity that's been set up called Concussion Australia. And they're with us now. Hey, Brendan and Amanda, thanks for joining us on Hack. Pleasure to be with you, Dave. Thanks for having us. Brendan, how significant is this news that former AFL players are taking action over concussions? Yeah, Dave, look, I think it's unsurprising in many ways. It's been in the works for quite a while, as I understand. I will just say, Amanda and I, we are restricted in some of the things we can say because we are solicitors. But watch this space. Amanda, from your experience, do you think we're starting to see more younger people talk about concussion in sport? Like in the early days, it did seem to be older people who'd been retired for a long time, but some of these people haven't been out of the game for too long. You know, I, I think that's right. I think younger people are starting to become more aware of, of concussion at, at, as a direct result of the sport that they're playing. And just becoming aware of it, it means they can manage it better. And then that 
hopefully that education then leads into, you know, the, the management of the club or whoever's helping them. Over time, we will hopefully get some, some great momentum in that space. Well, we're definitely seeing more research into this area and we've spoken to a few researchers over the past year or so, really, who are really specialising in this area of concussion in sport. Brendan, you spoke at a Senate inquiry recently into concussion. Do you think that the issue is finally getting the attention it deserves? We're getting there. Uh, as a country and a society, it's a very challenging topic, uh, not just for players, but for codes, for clubs, for trainers, and even parents, certainly one of the centerpieces of where we're focused, but we're getting there slowly. Awareness is increasing. In our view, the awareness, public awareness of concussion exists. Uh, It would be very difficult for awareness not to exist Uh, given the volume, not only of media reporting, but the way that uh, society is discussing concussion as a whole. It's the next step of education that we haven't quite got to yet, which is managing the injury, uh, understanding the condition or conditions and going from there. So that's where we're trying to slot in to assist the community uh, at the grassroots. And do you think, Amanda, that more and more people are feeling comfortable to come and speak with lawyers like you about their experiences and maybe think, oh, hold on, maybe something's happened to me or maybe I should get this checked out or take action? Definitely. So we we have seen a growth in, in the inquiries and, and people coming to just to ask the question or just to, to seek advice and, and go, you know, what what's happened to me here? What what can I do? Do I have an avenue? Do I have anything I can do? And and that's really great because I mean, without knowledge and awareness, people just don't know. And and you don't know what you don't know. So to get it out there and get that information is really, really, really important. And Brendan, I mean, the other thing that I found interesting was that a lot of the people you have involved in this charity have personal experiences of head injuries or concussion. Are you able to kind of give a, a, an explanation of your experience? Uh, about, about nine or so years ago, uh, when I was 16 to 17, I, um, I was a Thai boxer uh, and uh, I was on the end of a number of concussions during training. There are legal proceedings that are on foot for that at the moment, so I'm a little bit restricted in in what I can say. But certainly it's been the driving factor to try and build a great team uh, in my role as CEO with Concussion Australia and to continue to recruit great doctors and other people in this space who have that experience and, you know, most importantly, to keep encouraging people to play sport. It's not about stopping sport or anything like that. It's just about understanding the injury, what can happen, and taking it from there. So it's, you know, we don't have that position of banning contact sports for under 14 year olds or otherwise. We do have quite poor data as a whole in Australia about concussion, but what we're trying to do is that education uh, as a centrepiece. Well, look, as you say, young Australians do want to talk about this. They're constantly asking us questions and they don't want to give up their sport, but they do want to be protected. And we're finding a lot more, you know, discussion around this is happening all over the place. Research, as I mentioned, we're going to keep across this issue in the AFL, but more broadly as well. Brendan Swan and Amanda Gilmore from Concussion Australia. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having us. Hack. 
on Triple J. And some messages coming through. Someone says, all codes discuss this topic, but it's not yet compulsory to wear headgear protection. Surely this is the first easy step. Yeah, if you want to learn more about Concussion Australia, that group that Brendan and Amanda are from, it's really interesting charity. It's helping communities at like a grassroots level and they've got medical experts, lawyers, people with personal experience explaining these things. You can check them out online. Hack. I will never forget the feeling of adventure as I climbed on board the boat. On Triple J. All right, let's switch it up a bit. How are you feeling right now? Is this music helping a little bit? On those days when you're really stressed out at work or just over the grind, do you fantasise about packing up, getting out, taking off on a permanent holiday? You're about to meet some people who've done this. This story's pretty insane. We're heading to the Wit Sundays to meet a group of complete and total strangers who made a snap decision to quit their jobs, leave everything behind and be ready to sail across the world together in 24 hours. Our reporter Angel Parsons heard about this. I was freaking out that Angel was going to go and jump on the boat. We kept calling her being like, get off the boat, Angel, get off the boat. Anyway, what she found on the boat was some pretty loose units, but also a story of spontaneity and courage to do life a bit differently. This is the... Misfits. Hello. I'm probably living the biggest adventure of my life, and that was kind of unexpected. I'm excited because I'm basically going across half of the world. Have you ever sailed before? No, never. Never, ever. (laughs) Does that scare you? No, absolutely not. Ever done a sailing trip, though? No. (laughs) It's my first time. (laughs) Uh, I never did something like this, so I'm excited, but I'm, I'm nervous too. I'm at a marina in Ely Beach in North Queensland and I've just met some pretty free spirits. One day they were complete strangers and now I'm about to see them off on a journey across the world and it all started with a Facebook post. I see this post of this guy that was looking for a crew. Uh, the captain says, if you want to come here, join us, see how do you feel and everything. And it was okay. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Let's get to it. None of them have sailed before, so it's nice uh, to have them aboard. So this is Captain Ron Gertler, and he's 56 and an experienced oh, sailor. Stern line second. He was about to do a solo leisure sail from the Sundays here to Greece. But a few days before he left, he thought, I'll see if anyone else wants to come. So we put up a Facebook post. Were you expecting a turnout? Like, do you usually get people interested? Not always. That's definitely nice to have them aboard and uh, both entertaining and a pleasure to introduce them to this life and to sailing. So five people ended up responding to Ron's call out who are on board now. And most had been travelling Australia for a few months weren't planning on leaving yet but said they just could not pass up this opportunity. I was like, okay boss, I'm sorry, I was supposed to leave in two weeks but I'm going to leave tomorrow, I can't stay, I have to take this boat, he's leaving tomorrow so I got no choice, I'm so sorry, you're going to kill me, you're going to hate me but I got no choice. 25-year-old Nick Gilo from France was working as a bartender on an island. Imagine having that conversation with your boss. I started to pack all my luggages, start to clean my room and I didn't sleep to be ready at 7am the morning and I joined the boat. I also spoke to Lorenzo, also 25, who's going along after quitting his job working at a valet service on an island. I love to get surrounded of new people and just receive what they have to share with the world. And this is Raquel, the only girl on the trip. 
the girls was like, no, you're crazy, please send your location and everything. But I don't know, I'm a person that I felt then, I vibe then, and I felt really good. One day they didn't even know each other, and the next they're about to sail the world together on a trip that could take up to four months. You want a little tour? This looks pretty bloody fancy to me. <laughs> okay, so I've just come onto the boat and um, this is where your home is going to be. Yes. Oh my God, what was your first reaction when you came in here? Wow, like, yeah, nothing compared to what I've seen before, just crazy. I'm in love. I felt the same back here. I'm jealous, guys. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I just tell me I'm jealous of myself. Okay, guys. Already? Yeah. Captain Ron yes. jokes that his yacht has now become a hostel on water. Little safety briefing. Ron's been sailing since he was a young kid and got his captain's license at 23. He's spent heaps of time working in the yachting industry, but now he does it for fun and one of his greatest joys is sharing it with newcomers. I'm always interested in how they react to the sailing. It's always fun. But the yacht wasn't always this way. It was a real-life treasure-hunting vessel. So that's not just in the movies. Uh, it is real. There are still sunken ships that haven't been found. While repairing the yacht, Ron came across a coin from 1740 buried beneath the mast and found by the boat's previous owner, a treasure hunter. Ron put it back for good luck on his future journeys. But this crew, they're putting their faith in him. Most important thing is safety and it's not just... And in the philosophy of saying yes in life. I don't know, I have this feeling that you're almost going to be like family by the end of the trip though. Exactly, we're going to be family, we're going to share everything. For me the sea is mindfulness and relaxation, but it's also like uh, really feel your feelings really intensely, but we're going to be there to support each other. Do you have a, a wish or a hope from your trip? I want to be able to live without the automatic payload way of, of life that our society gives us. Ha! On Triple J. Angel Parsons with that story sounds good, doesn't it? I don't know, what do you reckon? Could you do it? Let me know. I want to get into the kind of decision-making process behind all this. It takes a particular kind of person to just be like, yeah, I'm going tomorrow. Dr James McHugh is a clinical psychologist. He's with us now. Hey, James, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, my pleasure, Dave. What does it take to make a decision like this? Like, why are young people in particular, these people are in their, you know, early to mid-20s, more likely to make an impulsive decision? Yeah, so there's a few factors, um, particularly around young people as to why they're more likely to throw caution to the wind and to make this sort of decision and to be impulsive. And we know one aspect of that is, is neurological development or brain development. And we know that the last area of the brain to develop is actually the, the prefrontal cortex. So it's the frontal region of the brain and that controls our executive functioning. So it, it controls our ability to delay gratification. It's, it's what controls our ability to engage in consequential thinking, to think a few steps ahead and to think about the possible consequences of the choices we make. So until that's developed, it, it, it's much easier for young people to act on the spur of the moment and not necessarily think through things and, and sort of how, how it could turn out. Oh, okay. So that's really interesting. There's actually a physical element to this as well. I mean, consequential thinking, that's talking about, that's like thinking ahead to, oh, what could go wrong here? That's come, some of the anxiety we sometimes have. Is that right? 
That's absolutely right. So usually where we see um, consequential thinking um, being important is when things have gone wrong and uh, older, wiser minds would typically look at a situation and think the outcome was probably quite obvious, that it could have been foreseen. Um, but of course, there are times where just saying yes, it can actually work out positively and actually thinking too much about the consequences can hold us back from what might be a really wonderful experience in life. Do you think growing up during COVID and this current global instability, there's a lot of bad news around, plays into Gen Z's decision-making processes? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's certainly uh, personality factors, individual personality factors that would uh, assist someone to make this sort of decision, but I also think there's societal factors. And I think um, Gen Zs have very much grown up in a world where we've just had a pandemic. We also know there's huge environmental concerns, also the cost of living, um, financial pressures, the, the notion that young people today, that that dream the older generations had of, of home ownership is, is sort of out of reach. I think it's helping young people to really or forcing them really to sort of define what the meaning of their life is. And as we heard in the piece just, just before, very much some of those young people, it's about the experience and it's about the richness of that experience. And that's what they, they want their, their, their life to be is a sum total of the experiences they've had. Interesting stuff. I mean, when you really deep it a little bit, there are probably a few things that could go wrong if you're trapped on a boat with a bunch of strangers for a few weeks. Um, who knows? It's terrifying. Yeah, for you, Dr James McHugh, question without notice, would you ever do that? Do you reckon you'd jump on the boat and go for a sail around the world? Oh, I am far too cautious and <laughs> risk averse. It would never be uh, what I would do, but I absolutely admire and on some level I'm jealous of of what they're doing and the adventure they're embarking on. It will be something that they will never forget. Look, I'm sure we're all a little bit jealous at the moment as we get on with our jobs and, you know, um, we're on hump day, we're in the middle of the week. Dr James McHugh, clinical psychologist, thank you very much for your time. appreciate you explaining that to us all on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.